Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. Today, I'm joined with Liam Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Rowley from the Schwanger Journal, Derek Kurt from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from the Times Union. Today, we'll be going over all the great news stories that happened over the past month and news stories that are happening now. Liam from Mayo from the River Reporter, let's start with you. I have a story from Wayne Memorial Hospital that they are right now facing some financial difficulties. What can you tell us about what exactly is causing the financial difficulties and what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, uh, this is a story uh, we've been following for a couple of months. The River Reporter, reporter Owen Walsh in Pennsylvania, started a little bit with an announcement back in August that Wayne Memorial Hospital uh, would be cutting both staff sizes and certain non-core services, uh, citing their financial challenges. And this isn't something that's unique to Wayne Memorial Hospital. Uh, hospitals across the nation are kind of struggling financially right now. Um, and uh, there's sort of no indication that Wayne Memorial is any worse off than other hospitals, but they are sort of experiencing, the, as they put it, economic hardships and rising costs set into motion by the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, they were hoping to, through uh, laying off a few people and cutting certain non-core services, uh, refocus and um, better be able to provide services uh, that they needed to provide for the money that they currently had. Um, more recently, they announced uh, that they would potentially partner with uh, barnes Casson Hospital which is a nonprofit, 25-bed critical access hospital in Susquehanna County. Um, the two have entered into a letter of intent to affiliate. Um, so there'll be some sort of partnership there. Um, and they said they were going to do this for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is this kind of financial difficulty. Hopefully by partnering with another hospital, uh, you'll provide sort of a economy of scale and just a better financial situation for both hospitals while still being able to provide these local services that people need. Um, and then the other sort of rationale behind the partnership was expanding services. Um, according to uh, Wayne Memorial uh, CEO, James Pettinato, um, they're in talks to expand services in neighboring counties. Um, and there are some sort of specialty services that Wayne Memorial currently offers that uh, Barnes Casson doesn't currently offer. So the partnership could um, end up expanding services even in this time of financial hardships for both hospitals. Absolutely. You know, just listening to the word layoffs and automatically, um, I would think that some of the patients who use Wayne Memorial Hospital might be thinking, wow, what's going to happen to the services that I normally go to or clinics that I go to in the hospital? What will happen to them? But it seems like this partnership is going to help with that. Like I said, where the short force are, the other services will sort of pick up, from what I understand. Yeah, and I'll add that um, in announcing the layoffs, they did say that uh, the immediate layoffs were a lot of administrative and non-direct patient care staff. So it's possible that there are like patients, or sorry, uh, employees interacting directly with patients who are subject to this. But it looks more like the hospital is trying to tighten its belt in kind of that middle management area, not so much like doctors and nurses on the front line. 
that's good. Definitely good information to know. And you just keep on this healthcare uh, topic here. You have an update for us from the Sullivan County Sunset Lake Adult Care Center. It seems like there's a potential sale coming up. I- I'm confused by all the news that comes out of the of the lake care of the care center. Just because you know a couple of years ago it was on the sale, it was a big controversy on that. Um, it was given the operation was given over to Infinite Care, but the county still owned the care center. So, what is the, actually the latest update on the adult care center? Yeah, it's definitely confusing, and I don't even at this point feel that I am a hundred percent certain of it. But um, we've gotten a little more clarity recently because of um, sort of the impendingness of the agreement that will happen. Uh, the state, uh, New York State, is currently reviewing a uh, sale and acquisition um, from Sullivan County to uh, Sunset Lake um, or Sunset SNF operations uh, associated with Infinite Care, the uh, the organization that has been running the uh, care center for the past couple of years. Um, what it looks like from the documents reviewing this arrangement is Sullivan County will sell to Infinite Care kind of the operation of the care center. So they'll sell basically everything that makes the care center a care center. Um, but Sullivan County will keep the physical building of the care center. So they'll still keep sort of a, a foot in the door at that care center. Um, and this is up for review by the state. Uh, the state was going to sort of decide on it uh, in August. Um, it pushed that decision back to a meeting in November, trying to review it more. Um, patients and sort of patient advocates at the facility are still, or specifically patient advocates at the facility, are still trying to um, have Sullivan County keep the operations. They're still trying to have Sullivan County um, be the one running this facility because, for a number of reasons, they're concerned about care at the facility. And they're also concerned that if this sale goes through, uh, county residents won't really have a public figure to sort of um, ask redress of. Uh, county residents have been able to sort of try and take the Sullivan County Legislature to task for operations at the care center because, at least in theory, the legislature is the final like body overseeing care there. If it's sort of a private company doing it, it'll be that much harder to sort of advocate for the patients getting the care that they need at that facility. Now, the county would, under this arrangement, still have the physical building through the uh, Sunset Lake Local Development Corporation, which is associated with the county. Um, But that local development corporation sort of has made it very clear that we are the people in charge of operations at the facility we're just a landlord. So they don't want to be that kind of oversight body accountable to the public uh, that the public is asking for. So that's sort of, I hope that wasn't too confusing, but that's sort of our understanding of where the situation is at at present. So what I'm hearing is that this means that the county will basically be landlords of the building uh, and the operations will be run by Infinite Care. 
Yeah, pre- pretty much. That's our current understanding of it. So it, I'm assuming this has to go to some kind of legislative body or some kind of voting has to happen before the sale is final, right? Um, it still has to go through New York State. That's the sort of body that is uh, sort of making the final decision. I think it's the Department of Health that is the final body here. Yeah, like I said, this is going to be an ongoing story. So please definitely keep us up to date on what's happening with the care center in Sullivan County. That was Liam Mayo from the River Reporter. Uh, Derek Kurt, let's go to you. Derek Kurt from the Sullivan County Democrat. You have a story about the opioid awareness night. You were there. This is the evening that happens annually, recognizing those who we lost during the opioid crisis. Family members there who have uh, opioid has touched their lives. Agencies that can help support the the um, combating the disease of addiction here of opioids. Uh, we are the highest opioid rates, death rates. We have the highest opioid death rates in the state outside of New York City. So, Derek, you were there that evening. What can you tell us? I was there in person that night, and it was a really surreal uh, event. Um, as many people in Salt County know, opioid epidemic um, and the effects of you know what has brought on the county um, is very. Uh, uh, it permeates the lives of many, many people. Um, and so the International Overdose Awareness Day vigil uh, is the third one that the county has held um, so far uh, in front of the uh, courthouse in Monticello. Um, and the guest speakers highlighted uh, a number of uh, individuals um, who have suffered the disease of addiction of um, opioids or new loved ones who have, um, you know, uh, had to gone through and um, unfortunately those who had been lost uh, to the disease. Um, as well as legislators uh, with their uh, viewpoints working um, in both uh, the federal house and the state house um, to see what they can do uh, for Sullivan County uh, with as they battle, you know, one of the worst uh, health rankings um, in New York State, um, which uh, lends to the opioid epidemic. Um, in addition to local law enforcement and EMS workers who, uh, you know, gave their view of what they see with the epidemic on the street level. Um, it was a, a, a very solemn night, um, with, uh, luminaries, uh, candles lit, um, and it reflected well, the amount of people in Sullivan County that have, um, both silently and publicly, um, gone through, uh, the disease of addiction specifically with, uh, opioid and other, um, illegal substance, uh, use disorders. Uh, the, the, this year's, um, overdose awareness, uh, day theme was recognizing those people who go unseen. Um, with a focus on family members and friends who, you know, are left uh, in the wake of tragedy um, after addiction. Um, and one notion uh, that captivated the message of the vigil uh, made by one of the speakers uh, is that secrets keep us sick. Um, as she said, uh, many attendees seem to share that idea uh, that the stigma of these issues only keep us from moving forward and from asking for help when needed. Um, so it was a great um, event to bring people together and show that, um, here at Sullivan County, uh, we are uh, connected to this, whether we want to or not. And asking for help is is a good thing, and we can uh, break the stigma. Um, and connected to that, um, in recent news, public commenters have questioned the Sullivan County Legislature's usage of opioid settlement money, um, and that recently uh, has been uh, given a new uh, a roadmap um, with the legislators coming out with a new uh, settlement use money plan. Um, with uh, 
uh, it reaches up to about uh, 772,000 up to uh, the plan um, incorporates. Um, the most of this, I believe, uh, is slated to go to Catholic charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster for uh, services, such as psychiatrics, nursing, residential, ser residential services, um, and all that uh, necessary necessary services. Uh, and they are slated for about 334000 Uh The others, um, a little less, um, but that is definitely one of the biggest uh, chunks um, being slated out. Um, so we'll have, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on what this money specifically will be used for. Um, and we hope that, uh, um, yeah. you know, whatever it is uh, used for, um, it goes to the benefit of people in Southern County and surrounding areas who do suffer the disease of addiction in the face of this um, silent epidemic, it seems to be sometimes. Um, more of that to be found on the September 26th edition of the Sullivan County Democrat. Yeah, the county had to spend, I believe, $1.4 million left over from the settlement uh, from the stemming from the class action lawsuits from the various opioid distributors and manufacturers. We had $1.3 million that had to be used. And he said majority of the money is going to Catholic charities, drug task force, and other agencies and law enforcement. So, uh, thank you so much, Derek, for that story. Uh, let's move on to another story here. You have a, an update, not really an update, but something we discussed the other day um, about a defamation lawsuit stemming from, uh, this is between the legislature, Louis Alvarez, and the chairman of the legislature, Rob Doherty. Rob claimed that Alvarez used a sexual slur against a female county employee and further claimed that that allegation was founded the jury came back with the verdict, and it seems like in favor of Louis Alvarez. What can you tell us about this? Absolutely. So, yeah, um, as you pointed out, uh, the results of that which you just mentioned uh, has finally come to light um, with uh, legislator Alvarez winning his case uh, against fellow legislature Rob Doherty. Um, it was decided by a six-member jury unanimously uh, that decided that the legislature chair Doherty had defamed his predecessor, uh, Louis Alvarez, um, when he publicly claimed that Alvarez had had a female counter, female county commissioner of profanity, uh, that he further claimed that uh, this allegation was founded. Um, a number of other, a number of uh, political leaders uh, led their opinions on the result, including le um, legislators such as uh, legislator Nadia Reich, as well as Sullivan County Republican Party Chairman Greg Goldstein. Um, Goldstein noted that in no certain terms we tolerate or support actions such as these, nor should anyone else. And a number of the uh, public officials uh, echoed uh, Goldstein's remarks. Um, Chairman Doherty uh, made a statement on the verge saying that while he vehemently disagrees with the decision in this case, he accepts the jury's verdict as that is how our judicial system works. Um, he went on to say, I can... I continue to stand by my actions and remain proud of my defense of a female county employee who, by her own testimony, testimony was wrongly attacked and insulted by another county legislature. Uh, this decision in no way alters the unanimous determination of the County Board of Ethics, which previously found that Mr. Alvarez had verbally abusive toward the employee in question. And Alvarez, Mr. Alvarez and his attorney, Michael Sussman, uh, gave a quote on the verdict saying that uh, Doherty had rightfully accused him of a despicable act, damaging his well-earned reputation, and that he had the gall to claim that this baseless allegation was founded when he knew full well that my act that the accuser had failed to ever raise uh, any such claim when speaking about the conduct to either director of human resources or county ethics board. Um, so the results of this um, 
are still uh, very new. We're interested to see how this will play going forward into uh, the elections coming up on November 7th, as both uh, Mr. Alvarez and uh, uh, Chairman Doherty are both seeking re-election. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on this story moving forward. And it should be noted as well that no damages or uh, or monies were paid uh, as a result of this case, and that Mr. Alvarez noted that um, it was not about the money, but about his uh, um, fixing his uh, damaged reputation. Yeah, I'm curious to see if this will affect the election coming up. They are not running against each other, obviously, but they're in different districts and um, they are both running for re-election. So uh, be interesting to see how this plays out during this election year. So thank you so much, Derek. We're talking to Derek Kurt, editor for the Sullivan County Democrat. Uh, Philip Pontuso from the Times Union, you are the managing editor for the Hudson Valley Bureau. Let's talk about what's happening. We have a tragic story of, of a bus crash that happened in Orange County on I-84. Uh, this has been all over the news, all over social media this past couple of days. Uh, the scenes, the photos from the, the event, it seems horrific. I, I just come to find out in your article that the operator has been um, had an unacceptable rating from the Department of Transportation. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest news from this crash that happened on I-84. Yeah, the latest update today as we're speaking is actually slightly positive. Um, the crash uh, on Thursday, there were, so there were 40 students and four adults. The, the two deaths were um, two adults. There were still five people who were in critical care a couple of days after the crash, but the district uh, superintendent for the Long Island School District that the students were coming from said yesterday that all those students are expected to recover fully. And I think they've all been downgraded to um, to stable condition as of today. So that's pretty good news. Um, the other update that our Lana Bellamy reported on um, yesterday was lawmakers and first responders kind of renewing a call that they say they've been issuing for a couple of decades now to build uh, what's called a crash gate at that part of I-84 that would dramatically shorten response times for first responders. So I'm gonna try to explain this in a way that works for audio, <laughs> but uh, that section of I-84 is sort of a divided highway, right? Um, and anybody who's seen photos from the crash will have seen the bus kind of over on its side in the median. But there's like a 50 foot ravine there. Um, and it means that uh, it, like, Usually, um, responders who uh, are having to, like emergency response, who are responding to an accident or an issue anywhere kind of along that stretch of I-84 where the highway is divided, have to go several miles east or west of an accident scene uh, to get to an exit and turn around and, and get back, right? And so what a crash gate does is that it provides like a secondary non-public access point to roads. Um, you know, it sort of remains to be seen what this specific one would look like, but basically it would be a kind of cut through um, that would allow them to get to the place like quicker. Um, the yesterday, um, State Senator James Scoofus, who represents that area, Assemblyman Carl Brabonic and the Wawandia, the Wawayanda Town Supervisor all called for the skate funding at a joint news conference at the fire department there. Um, 
Yeah, apparently, um, so the assemblyman, uh, Assemblyman Burbonic said that uh, first responders and local officials there have been have said that this has been necessary for years, as I mentioned earlier, and that it, the project has just been delayed over and over again. Um, and they're hoping that, you know, if there's one positive thing to emerge from this horrific bus crash, it would be uh, that they can finally get this project over the line with the state funding they need from the DOT to um, to prevent, hopefully, um, a, a res- uh, like a little slower response times in the future. Um, it's kind of unclear if that would have made a difference in this case exactly. Um, you know, the there are still multiple investigations ongoing into the specific nature of the crash, both what caused it and uh, the response times. Um, The state police investigation will probably be published first, um, but the National Transportation Safety Board is also on the scene. And uh, I've had several sources tell me they they do a much more sort of thorough uh, and robust job of investigating crash accidents. Their uh, lead investigators said on Friday that it should take them something like five to seven days to do the investigation itself, just to gather all the material they need, do all the interviews, et cetera. And a spokesperson for that agency told me yesterday that it would probably be about 30 days from the date of the crash that a preliminary report was issued. Um, Governor Kathy Hochul, um, and a state police uh, lieutenant in a news conference the day of the crash said that the kind of preliminary estimate is that there was an issue with the front tire that caused the bus to um, to crash. Um, it, it was, you know, there wasn't a collision with any other vehicle, at least that's been reported so far. Um, but of course, that still has to be substantiated. Um, and then the one other piece of news in this case is the story that I actually broke um, on a Friday, which is that Regency Transportation Limited, which is the Long Island-based operator of the bus company, um, they're on the State Department of Transportation's list of unacceptable operators um, for failing five of 15 semi-annual department inspections over the past year. And what that means basically is that so the, the state DOT maintains what it calls operator category lists as part of its uh, bus safety program. And to compile these lists, the state sends motor vehicle inspectors that are supposed to look at all of the uh, buses in operation every six months in the state. These are charter buses, school buses, et cetera. Um, the inspectors then categorize those operators as preferred, acceptable, unacceptable or unrated, basically depending on how many of uh, what percentage of inspections the operators fail. Um, If an operator fails 25% or more of its inspections, it goes on the unacceptable list, which is an annual list. Um, The the 2022-23 unacceptable operator list, which uh, was effective May 15th, includes Regency, uh, the Long Island operator, they had failed five of 15 inspections. The DOT spokesperson told me that the majority of those issues had to do with braking systems. Um, inspectors also noted record keeping and rear 
uh, axle issues. So again, it's too soon to say whether that directly related to uh, this crash. The bus that did crash uh, last week was inspected in August, which is when Regency purchased it. And it had been previously inspected in other states um, when it was being operated by a different company in a different state, and had also passed a random roadside inspection by the DOT since the regular August inspection. So that bus seemed to be in good stead. Um, but, um, you know, I just thought it was kind of interesting that the operator was on this unacceptable operators list, if only because the school district in Long Island, um, you know, presumably when they hired this bus, the, the bus was already on the unacceptable operator list. And so I don't know that too many people know that these lists exist. I, I, frankly, I didn't until starting to do some digging um, in the wake of this crash. And what's also kind of confusing about this issue is that the um, there are federal, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration also has company profiles and they have um, slightly better inspection data for Regency. But I've had several sources tell me that um, most of the data that the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration has is, is kind of less robust and, and, sometimes, and sometimes out of date. They're not exactly, you know, they're not sending inspectors to inspect every bus in every state across the country every six months. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I just thought it was kind of worth publicizing that information. Yeah, it's a tragic story, and I I hope uh, my heart goes out to all those who have been affected by this. And uh, ultimately, we guess we have to wait for this um, investigation to complete till we get all the answers to see exactly what happened at this brush crash. Uh, was it mechanical? Was it uh, human nature that affected this? So uh, please keep keep us up to date on this. We have another story that that uh, you have worked on. Uh, the state controllers report was released recently. It looked at demographic, economic, and quality of life in 10 rural counties, including Sullivan County. What can you tell us? Yeah, I'll try to stay at the 30,000-foot view here just because um, this is this is basically intended to be the state controller's office assessment, essentially, of like economic, demographic, and quality of life data in what are called rural New York. And so they selected 10 counties uh, as a kind of representative cross-section of rural New York, including Sullivan, as you mentioned, also Delaware County uh, and Greene County in the Catskills. Um, and they looked at a whole range of factors. Um, but the takeaway really from the report, and this probably won't be too much of a surprise, is that um, there are challenges, economic challenges and quality of life challenges in pretty much across all of these rural counties due to population loss, uh, aging residents, shrinking labor force, and a lack of easy access to housing, healthcare, food, and broadband, all of which we've talked about on the program before, including today. Um, Sullivan, I thought, was kind of an outlier in a couple of these categories and things that I thought were interesting. So, um, for example, only two of the 10 counties that the controller's office looked at have experienced any kind of population growth over the the 10 year period that it studied, which is 2011 to 2021. Um, one of those was uh, 
Hamilton County, and then one of them was Sullivan. And Sullivan has actually had pretty steady population growth um, uh, for a couple of decades with a big bump um, in April, starting in April 2020 due to the pandemic. But that has led to a kind of another way in which Sullivan is a little bit of an outlier in, in a negative way, uh, which is that the housing issue there is particularly um, the affordable housing issue is particularly dire. Um, the the capacity, basically, or the amount of affordable housing in the county compared to what is needed is just about the worst in the counties that the controller's office looked at. Um, one other thing I thought was kind of interesting, um, and it sounds like this could be changing or could be in some amount of flux is um, there are across all of New York state, there are 56 crisis programs that are uh, opioid outpatient treatment programs that are certified by, um, by uh, the state. There's only one in rural counties and it's in, it's in Sullivan County and it has capacity for six people. There are, 65 inpatient treatment programs throughout the state for um, opioid addiction. And um, the only one that's in rural counties is in Delaware and has 10 people. Um, there are only three counties that have residential treatment programs. Um, by far the largest is Sullivan's, which has 186 beds. So Sullivan seems to be slightly ahead of at least of other rural counties um, in trying to provide a uh, continuum of care for opioid addiction treatment. Um, as, as we were discussing earlier, that's partly because the need is particularly high there. That you, I think you mentioned, Patricio, the county has the highest rate of opioid, uh, of opioid overdose deaths outside of New York City um, and has gotten some, some funding, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, um, you know, popu- the, the the rural counties in New York are are aging. They're losing population. They don't have the access they need to to healthcare and food and broadband. Um, the silver lining here, I guess, if I want to end this portion on a good note, is that the report does recommend a number of potential solutions, such as you know, in, in, increase state funding. Um, agritourism um and outdoor recreation to try to boost local economies um you know i think we a couple of weeks ago i talked about um the state looking at licensing a couple of more casinos those are supposed to try to boost the local economy as well and a number of elected officials are calling on uh, um on the state legislature to pass um policy that can help yeah, I mean, this hopefully this, like I said, always reports have these solutions in them. I just hope that uh, this is my own personal opinion. I just hope some of these solutions actually get um, put into use and put into action because then it'll be just another report with a whole bunch of ideas that never get used. So 
Um, thank you so much for that reporting. Let's move on to another story about the Woodbury Commons. They're looking to expand again, which I understand that this is not the, the first expansion. I remember a couple of years ago, they had a major expansion of the Woodbury Commons, along with the expansion of that whole intersection with the roads and everything, which caused a huge headache in traffic, uh, especially those coming up from the city. So what can you tell us about this latest expansion from the Woodbury Commons? Yeah, so this this would be the fourth expansion uh, for Woodbury Commons since it opened in 1985. Um, the last update was in 2018, and that added um, not only that that interchange, but a parking garage, a food court, um, and 60,000 square feet of retail space. Later that year, the developer that owns Woodbury Commons, Simon Property Group, uh, submitted another application for an additional expansion, but that was held up by the pandemic. And so it's just now kind of going through the approvals process with the Woodbury Planning Board. Um, this expansion would add um, would add new more new stores, uh, about 150,000 square feet of retail space, uh, a second parking garage with 3,000 spaces. It would add a hotel with 200 rooms. Um, and then there would be kind of site updates. So better signing, improved crosswalks, uh, improved landscaping, and a children's play area. And all of this would come to $250 million uh, is what they are estimating at this point. Uh, at the September 20th planning board meeting in Woodbury, the attorneys for Simon Property Group, which is the developer that owns the outlet mall, submitted uh, this site plan, applications for a special permit and an environmental review in the state's environmental quality review process and a draft environmental impact statement. The planning board deemed that impact statement incomplete. So um, they are going back to the drawing board with that part. Um, part of that, part of that uh, statement includes a traffic study, which I know is going to be of uh, I guess <laughs> of great importance to anybody who lives in and around Woodbury or who visits the, the, the mall because uh, I guess it can be kind of a zoo down there. Um, so it's uh, it kind of remains to be seen when it'll come back before the planning board meeting. Um, I guess probably next month, but um, you know they have to they have to amend that environmental impact statement. The officials say that this expansion plan would create something like 3,000 jobs and generate um, a lot of local revenue, um, about $20 million a year. Uh, the mall already applies 5,000, or sorry, already employs about 5,000 full-time and part-time workers, at least during its peak season. Um, so that's where things stand there. Um, the mayor of Woodbury, he signaled his potential support for this in a statement. He said that this has long been an elite destination because of its premier shopping experience. This plan seeks to strengthen that brand advantage and power an even greater future, though he did caution that the village looks forward to learning more about how it can benefit the residents, businesses, and tax base. So didn't exactly say he supports it, but certainly seems open to the idea or possibility of expansion. Yeah, for those who don't know that area, it's very heavily trafficked area. Uh, those coming up from the city or commuting, it's right there in a huge intersection that goes into 17. It splits off with the th throughway. So I just remember the days when when that whole expansion was happening and the highway expansion was happening. It was very, 
uh, difficult as far as traffic-wise during rush hours. So uh, I'd be curious to see uh, what happens with that. And also, I'm not sure if I, you mentioned it, but uh, has there been any sort of pushback yet from the public or any kind of local businesses on this new expansion from the Woodbury Commons? Um, as far as we know, there hasn't been too much. Like the, the public hasn't had a chance really yet to uh, make its opinion heard on this because it's just starting out in approvals process. There will, of course, be a public uh, comment period as part of the state uh, review or state mandated review. Um, I was just saying that they they included a traffic study as part of the application and as part of the draft environmental impacts statement, which um, you know I was sort of speculating, although I think on fairly solid ground that people are going to be concerned about the the traffic and the parking down there. Now let's go to Ellenville. We have Chris Rowley from the Shawankook Journal. Chris, what's going on in Ellenville in Ulster County? You have, uh, I believe, a story that talks about mental health in the village of Ellenville. Okay, well, um, Village of Ellenville Board of Trustees meeting on Tuesday uh, because, uh, because Monday was Yom Kippur. Um, Tuesday, um, the meeting brought up um, an issue which basically began with a, a horrific incident at the weekend when um, a 35-year-old man uh, attacked his mother uh, and uh, and cut her throat uh, in, in in a street in uh, in, in their home uh, in Ellenville. Um, so the good news is that she survived and she's recovering. She's in hospital down in Westchester Medical. But, uh, you know, and he has been indicted by a grand jury in Kingston. However, uh, the issue that came up at the Board of Trustees was the mental health issue. Um, is there any way that, uh, say, mobile mental health can notify the village or Ellenville police um, in the event that something like this is going to happen or might happen or is on the cards? You know, I mean, obviously, you understand, everyone will understand how difficult this is because, first of all, there's the HIPAA rule from HHS. It's a federal rule that protects the privacy of all medical information. Uh, you know, every time I go to the doctor, you have to sign off on an HIPAA form uh, that, you know, nothing was going to be revealed about your medical uh, status and whatever it happens to be. So... Um, mental health is obviously a very sensitive area, and uh, there are people, as Trustee um, uh, T.J. Briggs noted, uh, who uh, get regular visits from uh, mobile mental health from Ulster County. Um, do those visits get uh, uh, reported to the police? Is that really the way we want to go? Uh, yeah, so it gets very complex. However, um, when when a horrific incident like this, and this is this is only the latest. I mean, we've had other um, violent incidents in, in the village over the years. Um, should there be some notification? Uh, you know, uh, it could, could it help? Could it, could it perhaps prevent uh, a tragedy? So that's a question that uh, Mayor Kaplan uh, wanted uh, to get an answer to, and uh, he has asked the village manager, Michael Warren, to uh, compose a letter to send to Ulster County Mental Health to, you know, to, to find out what the rules are, whether or not something like that could be done or whether it's completely forbidden. And so 
That's an interesting area. Uh, it's obviously a sensitive area for our entire society and um, and, and uh, along with all the mental health issues yeah. uh, that, that we have to deal with. I mean, at least you can say that at least the towns and villages are recognizing that there is a need for services of some kind for mental health. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult area. Um, you know, society has never wanted to really spend the money or, or uh, you know, I mean, once upon a time, people with mental health problems were routinely uh, basically imprisoned against their will, often, yeah. uh, in storiums. Uh, uh, um, asylums, they were called, if I remember. Uh, and then that was deemed to be horrific. That was that was the era of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you've seen that movie, you you understand what that's all about. Uh, that that ended, and the idea was that there would be community or even neighborhood um, situations set up for those people. Some of that has happened, but a lot of it hasn't happened. And one result is that uh, a solid, strong component of the homeless population in all of our cities are actually mentally ill people. Um, and many of them don't want to be uh, taken care of or anything, and uh, they throw their meds away. Even if, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of issues. It's very complicated. Everyone's a different individual. So, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a hard area. And to ask for police to be notified and to extend protection oh that gets into that gets into real privacy issues and uh i just don't know i i you know that's that's one for the uh the the lawyers and the the people that and the politicians probably to um, to work yeah yeah, when you have the police involved, that definitely does change things. And um, um, when dealing with someone who might be having a mental health issue, it does. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, I mean, Ellenville Police have, have got really good training. I mean, uh, Chief Patrician insists on it; he does a good job with it. So, for instance, in this case, uh, when they did respond um, to what was going on in the house, uh, they stayed outside and they right. negotiated with the individual. And they just and and uh, Matrician said told me this morning said you know the the tool that we use in these in these situations is time uh, we just stay out there we don't get into we don't rush in we don't run around with guns we just stay outside and talk to the individual and eventually they usually see sense and they'll come out and then we proceed and that's what happened um, but. You know, uh, would it have been better if they had known and been able to to be there? Right. Um, well, you just can't tell because the mental health thing can go off at any moment. You just don't know. Right. So that, that, that's that's a very difficult area. And privacy, I think, will probably trump safety in this one. Um, but we'll find out when that letter goes to Austin County Mental Health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have another story uh, that you worked on uh, about the Warsing Town Board adopting uh, a drinking water source study. What is this all about? Yeah, I mean, and this is another uh, of these things exploring um, a complicated and difficult uh, issue for um, our society uh, in, at large, right? Uh, town of Warsing Town Board has been concerned from at least the last seven years with protecting drinking water supplies. 
Um, that's one reason why the town board pushed to have five-acre zoning on a large area in the residential district, um, residentially zoned district. Um, that way to basically make sure that that wells would be relatively safe uh, in a large area of the town is, um, you know, basically people, single-family homes with yeah. wells drilled down into bedrock. Uh, if you have too many wells, then wells are going to dry up. It's just going to happen. So uh, they had the, the Environmental Conservation Commission spent five years working on a report um, concerning how to protect the drinking water resources in the town. And ah, this is the difficult thing. The key resource in the travel washing uh, is an aquifer about 50 feet thick. It's an outwash uh, deposit yeah, um, from the, the ice and the glaciers of the 10,000, 12,000 years ago. Anyway, and it runs right down the Rondout Valley, underneath the Rondout Creek, underneath Route 209. All the development, or the most of the major development in the valley, in that area, is along Route 209. Uh, and in the town of Warsing, there are six gas stations alone. I mean, that just gives you an idea of how much development there is. Um, so, I mean, how to protect? Well, the, the, the report that the uh, Environmental Conservation Commission came up with, the initial one presented in February, was a little harsh. Well, <laughs> it basically, uh, you know, put strict limits on the amount of, of impermeable surface Permeable surface. Anyway, so the uh, chair of the uh, Worsening uh, Planning Board, uh, who, who, of course, was notified and had a presentation of this uh, report, mm. said essentially it would it would end all development in the town. Perhaps an exaggeration, but clearly, you know, uh, there was a, a strong concern. So um, the uh, the Environmental Commission went back and. Uh, reworked the report. They came up with a softer side version of it, which was presented in July. And uh, last week, the town board um, signed off on it. They said, this is all very nice and well, and we like it and all that, but they neither adopted it, nor did they take any actions in regard to to um, doing anything that the, that the, the thing had suggested. Yeah, like I said, uh, I'll definitely keep us up to date on this story. Well, thank you so much for everyone for joining us on The Local Edition. You've been listening to The Local Edition on Radio Catskill. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Today, I was joined with Liam Mayo from The River Reporter, Chris Rowley of The Schwankuk Journal, Derek Kurt from The Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontuso from The Times Union, discussing the latest news and information from our listening area. Until next month... Take care and talk to you soon.